0: If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis uh, chapter 13, as we continue on in the book of Genesis this morning, as we uh, consider this chapter, we'll be doing so under, under four main headings. Uh, first of all, riches and godliness. Secondly, making peace. Thirdly, stay far away from trouble. And then finally, the promise reaffirmed. And for those who take notes, I'll I'll run through those uh, one more time. So we've got riches and godliness. Making peace. Stay far away from trouble. And the promise reaffirmed. Let's look to the text of Genesis 13. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot was with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, for their possessions were were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, "'Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers.'" Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, "'Now lift up your eyes,' And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise and walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, as I said, our first point this morning is, is riches and godliness. As this chapter begins, we see Abram coming up out of Egypt, bringing his family, his belongings with him. And we see there in verse two that he is very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And some of that, no doubt, was what had been given to him in Egypt on account. Of Sarai, as we saw last week in chapter 12. And so Abram is a rich man. He's very wealthy, but he was also godly as well. And we see this that when he returned from Egypt, he went back to where he had stayed before, that place between Bethel and Ai, where he had had this altar previously. And there again, he calls upon the name of the Lord. Despite his riches, he still trusted in the Lord and still worshiped the Lord. His riches did not blind him to his need of the Lord and did not blind him of his need to worship the Lord and give due honor unto the Lord. And this is something that is well worth our notice, well worth our pondering, and well worth applying to ourselves in our own circumstances. Because our Lord Jesus has rightly likened the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things to thorns that grow up and choke the word and make it unfruitful. That's the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4. Jesus said in Mark 10, 25, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 16, he told a parable about a rich man and Lazarus, To the Pharisees. And Luke explicitly describes those Pharisees in Luke 16 to whom Jesus was speaking as lovers of money. And so this was clearly in Jesus' view when he's telling this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And of course, in that parable, he told us about the rich man dying and being in Hades and torment. But Lazarus, Lazarus was carried where? He was carried to Abraham's bosom. This poor man. Lazarus was blessed along with Father Abraham, who was a rich man. They were there together in Abraham's bosom in that place of heavenly joy. And that means that Abraham was a rich man who made it to heaven. Jesus didn't say that it's impossible for a rich man to be saved, but he did say that it was hard. And Abram was saved. The rich man who ended up in Hades did not go there simply because he was rich, As the parable implies, his riches were clearly associated, clearly in the picture and clearly in view in regard to his condemnation. But how so? Well, Clearly, it's not simply the fact that he had them. It was because he abused them. Or if we may put it this way, it was because he allowed his riches to abuse him. He allowed his riches and his love of wealth and ease to twist him and to draw him away from what he ought to have been, and from what he ought to have been doing. It's not the having of wealth or the lack of wealth that condemns in God's sight. It is the attitude and actions of the one who has them that can condemn. And so Abraham is a a wealthy man who worshiped the Lord and trusted the Lord and not in his wealth. And this is a lesson that all of us need to learn. I know that within this room there's, there's a bit of a range in terms of uh, socioeconomic status, and that's fine and good. That's how it should be in the church. We want people of, of all backgrounds, people of all situations to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, uniting together in service and love to him. That's, that's the way it ought to be in the church. We want people from all kinds of backgrounds united together in Christ. But with that said, even though there's within the room here a bit of a range in terms of socioeconomic status, nevertheless, I think we all need to acknowledge that wherever we may fall precisely on that scale, we are much more wealthy than a large swath of the world's population. If you look at the world's population as a whole, we're pretty rich. All of us in this room, all of us are pretty rich. Now, I know we're... When you compare us to Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and those types of individuals, we're not that rich. I understand. But in comparison with many, in comparison with so many, we are rich. And so we can learn and we can stand to learn something here from Abram in his riches. And the lesson that we need to learn is that which is expressed in Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Sometimes, sometimes. Riches do increase. It's all right if they do. It makes some things easier, perhaps. But on the flip side, there was an old saying that said, possessions invite aggressions. Or Solomon expressed it this way in Ecclesiastes 5.11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what advantage is it to their owners except to look on? And so if riches increased, we must never set our heart upon the riches that have increased, but rather must set our heart upon God, which is is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.17 when he said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to become conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who supplies us with all things to enjoy. This is what Abram did. His riches increased, but he did not set his heart upon them. He fixed his hope on God, still trusted and obeyed the Lord, even though he could have grown proud and arrogant in regard to his wealth. And that's the lesson that we need to learn if we have earthly riches. And again, compared to so many in the world, we do have earthly riches. And therefore, we must be careful, take special care, not to set our hearts on them. The lesson that we need to learn in regard to wealth, is also stated this way in Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you have set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Or as Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation And a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In whatever our worldly and external circumstances are, we need to be content with what we have and keep our hearts and our hope fixed on the Lord. And correspondingly, we need to make sure that we are using those earthly riches and resources that we've been entrusted with in such a way that we're committed to doing good works, committed to being generous and ready to share. Riches bring certain dangers to those who desire to follow the Lord. Riches can indeed be those thorns which grow up and choke the word of God in the heart and life of the one who professes to believe it. And riches do this when we grow to love them, when we grow to trust in them, and when we seek after them in such a way that we're no longer seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to learn from Abram that earthly riches are not absolutely incompatible with godliness, but also that we must tread very carefully in regard to riches, because riches are we might say, are fraught with potential danger to our souls in terms of the way that we look at them, the way that we pursue them, and so on. So we need to learn a lesson here from, from Abram. Keep our hearts and hopes fixed on the Lord. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Now, the second thing that we see here in regard to Abram is that he was a peacemaker. And this is our second point for this morning, making peace. And this is a good thing, because Jesus has said to us, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now the conflict here is laid out for us there in verses 5 through 7. The situation is quite obvious. These two men possess many flocks and herds, and they're dwelling together in the the land of their sojourning. Water, ground for grazing, are getting scarce, and so there's a quarrel. That breaks out. From all that we can see, it seems that Abram and Lot are still on, still on pretty, pretty decent terms with each other. It's the herdsmen who are out there and getting it done, making sure that the animals have enough to eat and drink. They're the ones who are, who are kind of banging heads at this point. Verse 6 puts it this way, that the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And so Abram sees the situation for what it is wants to get it fixed, and so he says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Now, Abram's instinct in this is good and right. He says, let's let's not have this. And notice here how magnanimous and generous he is. As the uncle of Lot, and presumably the, the older, the more senior of the two, he could have simply used his authority in his dealings with Lot. He could have said, hey, Lot, this is, this is how it's going to be. Let's not fight. You go here. I'll go here. Let's, let's split up and let's do this. But instead, he gives Lot the choice. In verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, let's, let's notice what Abram does here. He was observant. He saw the situation that was going on. And in seeing what was going on, he saw the unpleasantness of the situation, and then he faced it. He took action in regard to what was going on. And in taking action, he was doing what needed to be done, but he wasn't overbearing about it. He wasn't unkind, rather generous. And in that we see, I think, an example of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where we're commanded, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And this is, this is what Abram is doing. He's, he's being generous and kind, not simply looking out for himself. And in this, we ought to walk in his footsteps. All of us are going to encounter some level of conflict with someone else. As miserable as it sounds, that's just life in a fallen world. We're all going to encounter some level of conflict in the world. The question then is, how are we going to deal with that conflict when it comes? Now, the best way to deal with conflict is to deal with it before it starts, if that is at all possible. And thus we find in Proverbs seventeen fourteen that the beginning of strife is like letting out Water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's the best way. Be sensitive to the situation. If you see something brewing, abandon the quarrel before any quarrel actually breaks out. Find ways to think about backing down, toning down the rhetoric, cooling down the temperature, ending the conversation, changing the subject, whatever, before something blows up. That's the best way. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. But sometimes we're too late. And unfortunately, the quarrel has already broken out. And when that happens, we need to be quick to find a way to put the quarrel to rest if it lies within our power at all. And when we're in that situation, we need to speak honestly. We need to be quick to confess what we can confess in regard to any wrongs that we have done to have brought the situation to the point where it is. we need to state plainly what we have done, state plainly how we 've been wrong, and ask for forgiveness. Now, obviously, if you haven't done anything wrong, then you can't actually ask forgiveness for the things that you did that were right. But our problem is is that we are too often too quick to let ourselves off the hook and justify our own behavior and assume that we have done nothing wrong and that the blame is entirely on the other person when, when there is a quarrel. That's kind of the nature of quarrels, isn't it? Is that we think they're the ones with the problem, I'm the one in the right. And so if you find yourself in that situation and you're saying they're the one completely in the wrong, I'm the one completely in the right, I would say, I would say two things. Number one, don't be too proud to search your heart. Don't be too proud to take a careful and thoughtful look at what pieces of contention you may have brought to the table of conflict. And secondly, don't be too proud to ask the other party involved if you need to ask for their forgiveness and why you need to ask for their forgiveness. They might be willing to tell you. And if you are a Christian, then you ought to be willing to recognize your sins and faults in this and confess them. And if they are a Christian, they ought to be willing to forgive you if you confess your fault and seek forgiveness from them. Now, sometimes, of course, there will be an agreement about the facts of the case, an agreement between both sides about what words were said or what actions were taken. And the point of disagreement, though, will be whether those things were right. So let's just say, you say something to me, I think it was sinful, you think it was fine. What do we do then? Well, depending on the circumstances, you may need to seek some input from a third party to help mediate and arbitrate the situation. Sometimes a third party can maybe help both parties see things they haven't seen so clearly before. You might need to go the route of Matthew 18 in regard to a brother who sins. Sometimes, however, you just need to overlook it, forgive from the heart, and move on even if the offender doesn't think they've done anything wrong, and even if the offender doesn't ask for forgiveness. And the reason I say that sometimes you just need to overlook it and move on is because that is the direction that Scripture itself points us. We're commanded in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now, how often has God the Father forgiven me when I'm not even conscious of having done anything wrong. How often does God the Father forgive you for Christ's sake when you don't think that you've done anything wrong? And moreover, we find explicitly in Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's a man's glory to overlook a transgression. I think Charles Bridges commented there helpfully on Proverbs 19.11 by saying, If God create us anew, it must be in his own image. Forbearance and forgiveness will therefore take the place of resentment and malice. Forbearance from a pure motive, passing over transgression in free love, is a noble triumph of grace, most honorable to God, fraught with the richest spoils to our own souls. It's beneficial and it's honorable to us. To, to pass over a transgression. Now, again, that's not always the route. Sometimes you need to go the route of Matthew 18. Sometimes you need to go the route of seeking a third party. And if you're having trouble figuring out which is which, try talking to a mature Christian about it, and they might be able to, to help you discern whether you need to just kind of forgive and move on or whether you need to actually kind of pursue this matter more closely with uh, the person that you feel is in the wrong but we need to remember that strife is more dangerous to our relationships and also to our own souls than we think it is. Proverbs twenty verse three tells us that keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any few any fool will quarrel. Abram thus pursued the honorable way in, in settling this quarrel, getting it straightened out, and may God give us the grace to walk in his footsteps and grant us that harvest of the fruit that James speaks of in James 3.18. James says that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And James says that in a context where he had just said one verse earlier, James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, then gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And then he says that the seed whose fruit is sown in righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our calling as Christians is to live in peace with all men in as much as it depends on us. And in the wisdom which God gives by the Spirit, we need to be peaceable and gentle and reasonable full of mercy and good fruit. Living like this is the way to live as a peacemaker who sows in peace. And the fruit of that sowing is righteousness. This was the way of Abram and may God grant that it would be our way as well. Now this brings us then to to our third point, which is stay far away from trouble. As Abram Was seeking to make peace with Lot, he, as we saw, gave Lot the choice of where he wanted to go. And Lot looked up and saw where he thought would be a good place for his livelihood. He had flocks and herds that needed to graze. They need green grass. They need water. And so, verse 10, he lifts up his eyes and sees that the valley of the Jordan is well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. He sees what will, in his opinion, turn to his prosperity? And so that's where he went. Went to the valley of the Jordan, near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Settled in the cities of the valley, moved his tents as far as Sodom, as you see in verse 12. And then verse 13 adds that ominous note about the situation. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Now Let's think about what's going on here. Here we have a situation in which a man moved into an ungodly environment for the pursuit of his vocation. Now, on the one hand, we need to keep in mind that the land of Canaan in general is an ungodly place. Right? It's not like the rest of the land of Canaan is a great and godly environment. But it's rather that they're all wicked, but Sodom is singled out as being particularly and Especially wicked as being above and beyond in this regard, and though we certainly see Lot's weakness and his terrible sin in the book of Genesis, nevertheless Peter tells us, Second uh, Peter two seven through eight, that Lot was a righteous man who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul. Tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, Peter uses the adjective righteous three times in the span of two verses to describe Lot. He speaks of him as a righteous Lot, as a righteous man, and as having a righteous soul. Sounds like a pretty strong commendation of Lot's righteousness. But nevertheless, we do see his weakness here. And so let's seek to learn from it. But what was his weakness here? His weakness here was that he was looking out for his earthly interests, his financial interests, earthly well-being, and put himself, spiritually speaking, in harm's way on account of it. We have an expression in our family that we will often say, stay far away from trouble. Instead of doing that, Lot was actually moving himself close to trouble. Here in Genesis 13, he moves his tents as far as Sodom. By the time you get to Genesis 14, 12, he is said to be living in Sodom. And certainly we know that by the time you get to Genesis 19, his house is in Sodom. It's very clear. He's living inside the gates of Sodom. He has to get out of town and leave before the town was destroyed. And so Lot puts himself close to trouble because he thought that it, was, that it would turn out to his earthly advantage to do so. And over time, he seems to move closer and closer to trouble. The text of Genesis tells us clearly what became of his wife, that when she left Sodom, she turned around and looked back, apparently as an expression of her longing to, to be there or missing what she was leaving behind, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. The book of Genesis tells us what Lot's daughters eventually did to him. And even when the angels had to come and get him out of Sodom before its destruction, Lot hesitated. He said, kind of, uh-uh, I, I don't know about this, such that the angels had to grab his hands and pull him along. His soul was distressed, Peter tells us, by what he saw and heard, but on the other hand, he moved continually closer to it. This did not benefit him or his family. And so what can we, what can we glean from this? What can we learn from this? Well, for starters, let's, let's be clear. You can't completely get away from sin and from sinners as long as you live in this world, And Paul makes this abundantly clear, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, when he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. This is true in Paul's day, and it is true in Lot's day. It's true in our day as well. Even Abram, living in Canaan, was living in the midst of sinners. And certainly it was the prayer of our Lord Jesus for his disciples in John 17, 15. Not that the Father would take them out of the world, but that they would be kept from the evil one. Until Jesus returns, his followers are going to be in the world and amongst the sinners of the world, but not of the world. But what we see here in Lot is what we might call an unnecessarily close approach to sinners for the purpose of earthly gain. An unnecessarily close approach to sinners for the purpose of earthly gain. And it seems that this choice on his part has some consequences in its wake further, further down the road you go. Proximity uh, to certain things can have some effect As you go further along, I was listening recently to a podcast in which uh, they cited a a Harvard economist, and uh, this Harvard economist uh, was cited as showing that the zip code a person grows up in helps to predict the likelihood that they will drop out of high school, get pregnant as a teenager, or be incarcerated. Statistically speaking, proximity, that is geographical closeness to certain things, has some bearing on how things might Turn out. Obviously, though, one has to be careful in the kind of application that we would draw from this. And so, for example, we can't draw from this categorically that it is necessarily wrong to move to a city that is known for its vices. To put it concretely, we cannot draw from this history of Lot that it is necessarily a sin to move to a place like San Francisco or Las Vegas. But I think we can glean from the history of Lot that you ought to at least put some thought into it before you do. You might want to search your own hearts and your own motivations in this. Is your motivating factor actually a desire to be close to sinful activity? Even if it's not, is a motivating factor for you your earthly prosperity? Are you taking into account as you make this decision what kind of effect living in a place like that might have on your soul the soul of your spouse or the souls of your children? If you make the move, are you going to be able to find a good church where you can plug in and serve and use your gifts and be ministered uh, to by the word of the Lord? Obviously, the, the grace of God can thrive under the most adverse of circumstances. We find in 1 Kings 17 that Obadiah was a godly man who worked for King Ahab. There were saints in Caesar's household, as we find in Philippians 4.22. But still, if you have a choice set before you about where to go, you need to carefully consider before you willfully put yourself in an environment in which the sins of the world are running rampant to a greater and more uh, exaggerated extent than they are in some other places. To put it, in other words, you want to think twice before moving to a red-light district. That is putting it mildly. It seems like a no-brainer that you ought to think about this before you do something like this. And now certainly this principle applies even more concretely in regard to the formation of close friendships. We find the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We sang those words of Psalm 1 this morning, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And likewise, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 13:20 that he who walks with wise men grows wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And children, this is something that you especially need to be thinking about as you begin to grow up and start forming friendships with with other children or perhaps with with older people as well. You need to be thinking about this. Is this kind of friend a friend who's going to help me? Or is this kind of friend a friend who's going to lead me away from God, away from the truth of the Bible? you need to be thinking about this. And if you're having trouble as a young person sorting through this, talk to your mom and dad. Talk to, talk to someone you know who's a Christian and maybe they can help give you some pointers about your friendships and uh, can guide you toward those friendships that would be beneficial to you. Now, in saying all of this, it is, we need to note that it is certainly fine to reach out to the wicked and to, to love them. Our Lord Jesus did that. right? He's friends with tax collectors and sinners and the people who of his day considered themselves to be religious looked down on Jesus for this. They they scoffed at him, saying he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But we need to note that there is a difference between reaching out and ministering to those whom we might consider the tax collectors and sinners of our day, on the one hand, versus seeking them out to be your close friends and confidants and role models. On the other hand, there's an important distinction between the two, between ministering to people and seeking them as your close friends, confidants, and role models. And those are lines that we do not want to blur. A lot stands out to us as a warning in these regards, because by all appearance, he did not do these things well. And then years down the road, there were some unfortunate developments for him. He seems to get closer and closer in proximity to wickedness, and then the things that we see him in a bad light in the book of Genesis are often, if not always, linked with this decision that he made about putting himself close to Sodom. He lived in a sexually deviant place, and then when push comes to shove, he offers his daughters to those who wanted to abuse the angels who had come to visit him, Genesis 19. He hesitates to leave when the angels tried to get him out of there. His wife, again, seems to have loved the place so much that she turned around and was turned into a pillar of salt. And then his daughters made sexually deviant choices as well. This is not good. Now, I understand that correlation is not the same thing as causation. Just because these things happen to the same man is not the same thing as saying that this one choice is the direct cause of all of these things. I get it that cause and effect is tricky to track down, but at the very least, there is a correlation here, a strong correlation that seems to be more than merely coincidental. Lot made bad choices about the environment in which he chose to settle his family, and these bad choices were followed by some corresponding sins on the part of himself, the part of his wife, and the part of his two daughters. And so we would do well to take a lesson from this and carefully consider the kind of surroundings into which we place ourselves and those under our care, our families. This applies to things, obviously, like geographically where we live, but it also applies to things like how we have our children educated, what kind of music we listen to and let our kids listen to, what kind of movies and TV shows we're willing to watch and willing to let our kids watch, and the kind of video games that we play and let our kids play or don't play. Now, I realize that in touching on these kinds of things, we're touching on some things that are not completely black and white. There's room to make allowances for differences in regard to conscience, in regard to preference, and in regard to disciplined choice. But even if your conscience is more free in some of these things than that of some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, even still, you need to be thoughtful You need to be thoughtful about the kind of influences that you're allowing into your life and into your mind and into your heart and into the lives, minds, and hearts of your families. You need to be grounded in the word of God and in the ways of God and not in the ways of the world. You need to be training your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and not catechizing them in the school of worldliness. We need to learn to stay far away from trouble. Now, again, Christians can come to different conclusions in regard to some of these things, but whatever conclusion we come to, let's not be mindless about it. Let's be thoughtful. Again, we read those words from Proverbs 4.23 this morning. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to stay far away from trouble and watch out for the things that are influencing our heart, because whatever is influencing our heart, that's going to work its way out, and be manifest, be shown clearly in our lives. Now let's look down to uh, to verses 14 through 18. Let's, let's read those verses again. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you And to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. In these final verses of chapter 13, we see the Lord's promise to Abram reaffirmed. Abram had already been promised the land of Canaan back in chapter 12. Um, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord had promised that this, would be, uh, this land would belong to Abram's descendants. And here the, the promise is reaffirmed. Abram's sinful behavior in Egypt, the second half of Genesis 12, did nothing to annul the promise of God which had been given to him. And though the the substance of the promise here in Genesis 13 is the same as that of Genesis 12, nevertheless the form of the promise is different. And I think we do well to pay attention to the form that the promise takes here and to look to the New Testament for some application to us. And so... We see here that the land would be given to Abram's descendants forever and that the Lord would make Abram's descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth so that if anyone could number the dust, then Abram's descendants could also be numbered. We saw in Genesis twelve two last week that the Lord was going to bless Abram and make him a great nation. But here we see promise of innumerable seed. His seed is going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and they would possess the land forever. Now, certainly we know, and the Old Testament bears witness, that the biological descendants of Abram were many. We know they came out from Canaan, and by the strength which God supplied, they took the land from the Canaanite, and they dwelled in the land for hundreds of years until the exiled to Babylon. And after 70 years of exile, they, uh, the remnant returned in accordance with the Lord's promise. And at that time, they returned and dwelt in the land, but for the most part they were under uh, various political overlords of, of foreign nations. And so the biological seed of Abram certainly did have many centuries of dwelling in the land. And even now, many of the biological seed of Abram dwell in that land. But the scripture makes clear to us that the Lord is not only concerned with the biological seed of Abram, Indeed, Paul tells us in Romans 9, 6, and 7 that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, there are some biological children of Abraham who are, spiritually speaking, biblically reckoning, not the children of Abraham. And again, Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29 that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And thus there are some biological seed of Abram who are not reckoned as his seed in in this way, in these terms. But on the other hand, there are some who are not biological descendants of Abram who are actually reckoned as his seed. And our brother John read for us about this this morning in that New Testament reading from Galatians 3. Paul says it so clearly in Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's offspring, literally Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Abram was promised innumerable descendants, innumerable seed And all those who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, are members of that innumerable group. Members of that group who, as we find in the book of Revelation, that no man could number. Taken from every tribe and tongue and people who are worshipping Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in heaven. And also, all who are in Christ have the promise of an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, as Peter says in Second Peter 3.13. Now certainly the promise here in Genesis 13 was pointing to the biological descendants of Abram dwelling in the land of Canaan. But the promise here also points beyond merely the biological descendants of Abraham and the conquest of the land of Canaan, under Joshua and the subsequent generations who lived in the land. The promises here include those things, but it also points, points beyond those things. The promise points to the seed of Abram being comprised of all believers in Christ, pointing to an eternal inheritance, including land, land on a renewed earth, dirt. I can't tell you everything about what life on a renewed earth will be like, I can tell you that it will be wonderful, because the first order of things will have passed away. The curse under which we labor and groan will be gone forever. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death, and God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. It will be absolutely wonderful. But this is a blessing that comes only to those who are of the seed of Abram. This blessing will only belong to those and will only be experienced by those who are in Christ, and this comes only through faith. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham, as Paul says in Galatians 3 7. And therefore, only those who have true faith in Christ will receive this eternal inheritance. And this is because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who came so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for sinners as the ransom so that we might have eternal life through him. And by God's grace, he was raised again on the third day for our justification. It is through Christ that we receive this eternal inheritance. Otherwise, we perish because we deserve it because of our sins. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this. There is a promise of an eternal inheritance, but this promise is only for those who are in Christ. So turn away from your sins and trust in Christ today. And if you have more questions about what it means to to believe upon Christ and to turn from your sins, how to receive eternal life, you can talk to me, you can talk to another Christian whom you know. We would be glad to tell you more about this. We urge you to come to Christ today. And if you're here today and you are trusting in Jesus, if you have by faith... Become the seed of Abram, one of his descendants. Then understand that the promise here in Genesis 13, again, though pointing certainly to the conquest of the land of Canaan, this promise here points beyond it. It points ultimately to your eternal inheritance. So look forward to the day when it is yours. Long for it. Seek God's grace that you may be found faithful until you receive it. And pray for the coming of that day in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And give praise to God for his mercy in including you among the seed of Abraham such that you are a recipient, an heir of an eternal inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your grace to sinners. We thank you that you were gracious to a sinner like Abraham. We are thankful for uh, the fact that you sent Christ uh, to be gracious to sinners like us and count us among those who are blessed in Abraham, the believer. Father, we ask your help and your strength that we would walk faithfully with you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to Fix our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.